This is Out of the Crisis. I am Eric Reese. Look, I don't want to tell you what to do, but you probably should be following Zainab Tefeci on social media. At least if you want to know what's going to happen in the future before it does. She has been early on so many of the big trends shaping our world in the 21st century, and the pandemic has been no different. Zeynep's story is a unique one, starting in poverty in Turkey and ending as an American academic. And initially, our conversation was going to be about her work during the pandemic, including being one of the very early proponents of Masks for All, as you may recall from my conversation with Jeremy Howard. But we ended up also discussing so many different topics, what it was like for her to grow up in Turkey, what she calls techno-sociology, her work understanding 21st century protests, and so much more. The conversation went on for so long, I had to split it into two parts, both of which are fascinating. In this part, Zeynep tells the story of how she grew up in Turkey, learned English, taught herself to code, and tricked IBM into hiring her. We'll save the pandemic for part two. Here's my conversation with Zeynep Tefeci, part one. So my name is Zeynep Tefeci. I'm an associate professor at the University of North Carolina, and I research how technology and society interact. That's most of my focus. But I'm a sociologist, and I've been I've long been focused on the sociology of pandemics for teaching, especially because it's a great way to teach about globalization and what it actually means in practice. And until this year, it was more of a theoretical example that I would use to explore with my students. And so this year, I found myself doing a lot more research and writing in an actual pandemic too. But ordinarily. I'm usually looking at things like digital tech, public sphere, all those things, machine learning, artificial intelligence. And I started on the technical side. I, I My first major in my professional life for a while was you know, programming and technical, and I just switched over to the social impact sides because I thought it was so fascinating. This was going to change the world and be very interesting. And at the time, it wasn't as obvious that this was going to happen because it was early on. But obviously, since then, it's become pretty clear this is uh, quite important something to research. And so here we are. Well, Zainab, I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time. I have to say, uh, for those who do not follow you in your work, it's like having a superpower because I find that whatever you're writing about and talking about, uh, the whole rest of the world will be talking about in a few weeks or a few months. You've just been so early to so many of the trends that matter, both with the pandemic, of course, we're you know, very early to the importance of masks, to the fact that authoritarian governments would have a hard time with the pandemic, to the fact that people obsessing about beaches was the wrong thing. But before that, you were early to ideas about the spread of misinformation and the use of social media and the misuse of it in protests. It's just, it's been like one thing after another. So first of all, I want to make sure everyone gets to enjoy that superpower and mostly just thank you for the work that you've done. Thank you for the kind words. Uh, your research has been uh, incredibly helpful to me personally. So I was uh, very grateful to you uh, for coming on. I'm fascinated to, to learn a little bit more about your background, making that transition from technology into sociology. But before we get into the meat of it, uh, how are you doing? How is the 
how's the pandemic and, and this overall crisis? How's it been for you personally? How's your family? It has not been terrible for me personally, uh, partly because I live in a low density, um, sort of small community, but that has a lot of access to the outdoors, right? I live in near the University of North Carolina. So that's been not that difficult for me. And for a variety of reasons, this was an area that was quick to mask up indoors, relatively speaking. So that has been uh, good. And we're near big, three big hospitals that are still operating and functional. So I've been spending a lot of my time outdoors. There's a lot of trails and I am took up uh, mountain biking and trail running, things I had not done before. Uh, so all of that is relatively good. But of course, I'm normally someone who does travel a lot for research. My for last year, my research was really focused on Hong Kong and the social movement there. And I cannot go there anymore, partly because of the pandemic. And now with the national security law, who knows, there's going to be other implications. So there's all these, you know, I do, I do a lot of protest research and there's now these big Black Lives Matter protests and I can't really travel to them. And in fact, can you even, you, know, you can't really interview attendees safely either in most conditions the way I normally would. But that said, for someone who does research on the impact of technology and society, who's very focused on globalization and complex systems, that's something that I've always been interested in understanding, like, how do you think about complex systems? And someone who does pandemics and protests, I keep joking, I've never been more confined, but less bored intellectually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not saying this is like a celebration. I wish I was more bored because... Don't you envy the people who are bored? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but because some of the things I research aren't great. So I would much prefer the world in which uh, my expertise and knowledge and work on pandemics was irrelevant. Amen but in, yeah, intellectually speaking, it's been a very interesting time where a lot of things that were there as a risk, but not really talked about and discussed have just been exposed very much out in the open. Mm -hmm. And it was eventually going to happen. We were going to get hit with something sooner or later. And that's why I used this to... This an inevitability. Yeah, there was, a, there was like, this is a global interconnected world with... Uh, and we had SARS was the first sort of crisis that turned me to the importance of this topic. And it was my example for a long time in teaching. So here we are. I hadn't even thought about what it would be like to try to study protest while confined uh, to to your home, and you know, for those that don't know, I'll just I'll plug your book Twitter and Tear Gas, which is exceptional. And Thank you. As you, as you reminded me is on Creative Commons, so I would tell people to buy the book, but they can just go download yeah, it. If, but they, if, you, if they purchase the book, they're helping my publisher. Um, not terribly regret the fact that they let me have a Creative Commons copy, but it was nice because it's Yale University, and they were. It's 2020. Uh, if people purchase a book rather than find the PDF, quote unquote, it's a conscious decision. And I thought, let's just do this legally and without guilting people into it. Uh, but yeah, yeah the, the stuff you normally study, I, I like, I travel a lot and I go and I like talking to places and I like being on the ground. And that's not possible the same way anymore, but so much is happening. And there's a lot of sort of digital ethnography and digital research techniques and methods that have been developed. So we're doing the best we can. 
So talk a bit about your background. How did you come to be in academia in the first place? And and love to know how you discovered technology and, and thought that would be your career and then and the career switch into sociology. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a, it's a weird but lucky in the end story. I started out on the tech side and the science side, meaning like the, I, I wanted to first be a physicist when I was a little kid, like five or six, because mm-hmm. I thought, oh, secrets of the universe, this is so amazing. And I had this pro, I had the sort of talent for math and physics, and it was just fun for me. But if you talk to anybody who's become a physicist, at some point early on, they hit the nuclear weapons question. There's these big ethical questions that shadow the field. And when you're a kid, you don't know how to make sense of it. Now, in hindsight, of course, most current physics has nothing to do with those things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The Higgs boson is not an existential threat, except to people who want the Nobel Prize, and Nobel Prize can only go to three people. That's their big ethical problem right now. But so I thought, oh, maybe this is really thorny. I grew up in Turkey, and I didn't really have, I didn't speak English till I was 12 or so. I didn't really have access to all the books and all those things. I just am reading whatever's translated into English. And and when it came to go to college and choose a major, it was a time in my life that I don't recommend this as a method to find a major, but I had a terrible home situation. My mother, unfortunately, had spiraled into alcoholism and my dad had left the country. So (laughs) it's not like it was like being 16 and on your own. And I had uh, started working really early in my life because of those circumstances. I, I started working when I was 12 or 13, bagging groceries, which I got two things out of it. I got strong arms and I bought a computer with my first earnings because I just like technical stuff. And I had taught myself how to program. And I thought, you know what? I will pick a career. I will pick a major. I'll become a programmer and it'll be really boring. I'll write accounting software and there'll just be inventory, three of this, seven of that. And there'll be no ethical issues I have to deal with like those other careers like physics and genetics and medicine where they have to constantly think about what am I doing? What am I doing? I said, I will pick a fun, technical, ethically boring, but financially something I can go work (laughs) with kind of career. So I said, all right, I'm going to become a computer programmer. I picked that as major, got into a really good university. And since I already knew how to program uh, as a teenager, I've been doing it. I had been doing it since, since a tween. I immediately got a job. In fact, one of the first things we were writing was an inventory and stock software because in Turkey, because in a lot of countries, you can't just do off the shelf. There's certain legal requirements, Mm -hmm. but there's certain things like a word processor, maybe somewhat off the shelf, but you need local adaptation for those things. So it was for the brief period, it was exactly what I'd hoped for. Uh, Well-paying, relatively speaking, I'm still a teenager that allow me to stabilize it, allow me to not be homeless. This is, I'm, forever grateful to that. In fact, I owe my life. I've told this to Brian Kernigan, who wrote the Kernigan Richie C programming book that a lot of sort of tech people might know. A genuine question. Yeah, I know, because what happened is my first job interview, they wanted a C programmer. And I didn't actually know how to program in C. I knew some other languages. And I somehow found a copy of Kernigan Richie 
in a mm-hmm. school library. And by then I had learned English and I just stayed up all night and read it. Think about twice. You're going to laugh, but I've never heard anybody else who had that experience. I, I did the same thing as a child. Did you? There you go. So <laughs> we, we are, uh, this is how you find your twins. I read it all night. I was able to, what's the polite word, BS my way through the interview. You fake it till you make it. I, fa- I faked it because I, I look, I'm borderline homeless. Okay. I'm a teenager in Istanbul without a safe place. It was not a pretty moment. And I thought by the time they fire me, they give me just one month of salary. I thought this is great because to cause a homeless teenager, one month of salary is a lot of money. Like, mm-hmm. you know, just crash at friends' dorms and things like that. And I just, the book was so good and so instructive. I was able to do the whiteboard and then I hid under the desk for a month. <laughs> the first <laughs> month, I just hid under the desk because I'm like, I hope they don't expect me to be producing anything. And I just read and tried and read and tried and just worked uh-huh. my tail off the first month. And I was able to get some stuff and oh, there's a bug. I'm working on the bug. And let me have the first month. And of course I learned because um, that's what you do. And then that was great. Like I, all of a sudden I had a professional job. Now it was terrible for my schooling because I had to be at my job. So I was flunking my classes because I couldn't attend my classes, which was fine with me. Like I wasn't, I I thought it's okay. In fact, very often what I would do is I would go to the final exam and flunk because I had not attended a single class. And I would, the final exam would give me the exam questions and I would go down study on my own and take the makeup and pass the makeup. So I mm-hmm. attended the final exam just to get the questionnaire to know what did we just learn. Anyway, so I, I got to meet Brian later and I told him, it was just an amazing moment to be able to tell him, oh, that book. <laughs> and I had I had a big fangirl moment. I was like, this is the oh, sure, book, this a- is the person. Uh, so it's twist of fate. But that's how I got into the rest of it too. That allowed me to stabilize. I was able to rent a place be safe. It was just a life-changing skill for me. And then for my next job, or my third job, very soon after, I started working for IBM, Mm -hmm. which again in Turkey. And at the time, it was hilarious because IBM did not have teen girls working for it. It It was like everybody wears a tie and suit to work era of programming, at least in Turkey, but they were doing something. The person that they hired or that was the lifer, like IBM had these lifers, he was not managing this localization. It involved mainframes, MIDIs, and personal computers. It worked across platforms, the sort of localization. Well, localization was not considered a high priority. No, um, and he did not manage it very well. Now you're going to see a pattern here. They needed someone who could work with the all three levels, the mainframe uh, that was built before I was born, to be honest, and the MIDI and the personal computer level. And I had not seen two out of the three in person, <laughs> but I got the job somehow. And again, this I hid under desks for the first month, just reading, like I had no idea how to operate a mainframe whatsoever. I, it literally was older than I was, and I'd never laid my eyes on it before getting hired to do stuff on it. But here's what change for me was very interesting for me is that I my way of conquering new machines has been I usually just read the manual I start from the I'm a manual reader I start from the end of it I read the glossary first and I just work I I read backwards 
I read the glossary so I know all the terms, kinda, and then I start reading everything else. But I wasn't alone in IBM. They had this virtual net, which was their internal forum. Mm -hmm. And you had access to all of IBM, all the employees. What a resource. Look, I'm in Turkey. There's one TV channel. Everything is censored. Uh, there's one like FM channel, all government owned. There's some opening here and there, some privatization, some second TV channel, but it's this heavily censored environment. I know the internet exists at this point, but there's no internet. I'm working at IBM and I have these questions about, I have no idea how to do this <laughs> on this mainframe older than I am. And in sort of offline life, it's very hard workplace for me because I don't look like your IBMer. Like I'm a teenager still and I'm like, I'm wearing jeans and I wear the way that is now normal for a coder to like, I'm just dressed like a person who's young and not, I'm not wearing like whatever the, their very professional dress thing is. I'm young. I'm a, I'm female. It just doesn't work. But on the IBM forum, people couldn't even tell my age or gender from employee. my name. I'm just an IBM person. And I would ask these questions. And then somebody from Japan would pipe up and say, oh, yeah, I wrote that script back in well, before I was born very often. Like I would be trying to make something work and somebody who'd written that would explain it to me. And then there was also a lot of small talk and there's a lot of all the other things that we see in all internet forums, all the sort of social stuff. And my mind was blown. Like I just remember thinking this is going to change everything. If you can, because once again, I had this very stark comparison to a top-down censored world. Uh, it was after a military coup. And the way I talk about military coups in Turkey, the saying the Inuit have many words for snow. Well, in Turkey, we have many words for coups. We have so many of them that we just have, like constantly have this threat. And mine was, uh, my childhood had been under particularly severe one. So I had been used to what information control and censorship looks like. And just having that IBM forum just be there for me. I, I just thought, you know what? I, this is what I want to do. This is going to change everything. And I'd been like, a, I, I, I was a science fiction reader. I had all the, I think a lot of tech people will recognize that kind of childhood. I just happened to be in a third world country that undergoing a military regime. Uh, so I had a starker comparison. So I, I used to read about what are all the possible worlds kind of questions. And I thought this is going to change everything. I don't want to be a, I don't just want to be on the technical side, which I, greatly enjoy. To this day, I sometimes joke that people, technical people, get tenure and become pundits. If I get a vacation, I just want to hide under the desk and write code and stats. I really enjoy it. But I thought, I want to understand and I want to think about how this is going to change the world. So I switched. I finished my first major and then I got into another one, sociology. And I tried to bring any of this up, and it was just going nowhere in Turkey. Sure. It wasn't even clear you could talk about any of this. We bared, we then got the internet. Of course, I immediately got on it. I got a second phone line. It was that bad. I got a second phone line because we had dial-up, and I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm keeping that <laughs> second line busy. And I wanted to be at that thinking about a changing world thing. And I really did think oh, this is historical, major historical. This is going to have huge impacts. 
And that's how I switched. So it's my technical background that kind of led me to early exposure in a particular setting where that exposure was powerful in its impact. Because if you didn't grow up like that, you might not realize what a difference it's going to make. And then I came to the uh, U.S. just to say, I want to study this. And it was for a long time, it was an uphill battle because people thought, like I was talking about, say, user interface, like where the buttons should be, all of that. I'm like, no, those are important too. But no, this is going to change the way we make friends. This is going to change the way we do politics. This is going to change the way because you change the communicative infrastructure of a human society is going to affect everything else too. So it was an uphill conversation for a while. And in fact, right now, my Wikipedia finally says techno-sociologist. But there was a long argument about that in my Wikipedia pages because I made that word up because <laughs> uh, I did not have a way to describe what I was doing. So they finally conceded, okay, this is a valid word. And they let it's not so-called anymore. It's just straight up or self-described as so I was just trying to say this is not like this or that it's just looking yeah, at you need, you need an accurate term to describe yeah you need you're looking at uh, age-old questions of how society operates and it turned out to be really lucky because so this is again people who go into programming or technical stuff they tend to like building little worlds they control it's a really mm-hmm. fun thing it's like playing Dungeons and Dragons right you like build a little world and it's self-contained and it's like puzzle solving but in reality in today's world when you do write software and release it into the world you're doing something as far away as building a small world you can control than you can imagine you're adding a vector to a very complicated system so you what you're doing is you're tweaking something in a complex system and complex systems historically cannot be easily predicted. Like you can't say like I'm going to just sort of take an ecology and remove one species and let's see what happens. We do not, (laughs) that's not how uh, it works. But a lot of people who do get into the technical world, it's that little puzzle solving thing uh, that they find interesting. And then you put it into the actual world and it's as far away from puzzle solving as you can get. It's like complicated stuff and which is another thing I I was really lucky and I I got to meet this author too I can't believe I get to meet all these authors that I really learned so much from as a teenager I had an early copy of James Glyke's Chaos Mm -hmm, so that yeah this exactly see this and I had really thought oh wow this is such interesting stuff to think about these kinds of systems so I just plugged all of that into whatever it is I ended up doing and so you to go back to the very kind words you told me in the beginning i really appreciate it and what i tell people when people say we keep doing these things where it appears prescient and you have these early things that later turn out to be important and it's that lucky intersection like some technical background some sort of the social science humanities background but also like this complex systems point of view rather than Uh, a more simplified and manageable but does not really occur in the world kind of thing exactly and that's that is not something that normally we educate people in i just out of it we educate them out of it and i stumbled into it i was trying to 
I don't really recommend my own way of stumbling into it. I was describing it. Somebody said something kind to me today and I was describing it like, yeah, I stumbled into it and I don't really recommend my path. It's like putting somebody on the Titanic and saying, you're, oh, your swimming skills are great after they survive it. I found myself uh, working very early, not because of anything I would recommend to everyone. I, I think know. it's fascinating about the story and just recognizing so much of my own life and so many of the tech people that I know. Imagine your bookshelf and mine look a lot the same and, and probably did at 16 too. And yet you had, you know, what we normally think of here in, you know, certainly in California as a kind of like privileged middle-class upbringing, had a computer in the home, taught yourself to program, but to have had that same or a similar experience against the backdrop of something so starkly different it sounds like you were able to mine that experience for a lot more worldly knowledge and historical context than the rest of us were. It helps. It, it definitely helps. Now you look at the early pioneers, say the Bill Gates of the world. Besides being at the right place at the right time, the, one of the things they had was they had Bill Gates had a school that had a computer he could play with. And in the 70s, that was a huge privilege. It was a private school and they had their own little not that little. I think they had a mainframe, but whatever they had, it, it was some. So when you get to the marketplace and you're one of the 10 people who can program basic, that's a, that's the difference between being one of the richest person on the world or not. It's not that big a difference necessarily in skill in today's terms. That was very important. In my particular case, as we discussed, I really had a computer because I was bagging groceries and when I was 12 and saving like and i made enough money to buy what it was just the era where you were getting these little personal computers or the commodores and the zx spectrums of the world so i was just that era that working and in fact it wasn't even legal totally legal for me to work and there might have been some ids that might not have been completely accurate but the thing that so i had the same thing that you're talking about and i got really lucky i learned english early on, which opened the whole world to me. And I did not learn it normally in Turkey. People who speak English like me are very elite. They went to an elite college. They went to an elite high school. Their parents went out of their way to teach them English. In my particular case, it is nothing but being a military brat. My dad just happened to get stationed in a place that people spoke English. Like, so I had, if anything, my parents were so negligent, they didn't even bother try to make sure I learned English, which is what all middle class or upper middle class families in Turkey do. So I look like someone who comes from a really like super elite background who speaks English, has read so much, has been programming since a tween, all of that. But I completely different experience of getting there. And in some ways, it gives me some more insight, I think. And it also, it's one of the reasons I didn't necessarily want to go into the tech side of it, which is very interesting. It's always been tempting. And I could have, I've been there since the beginning. I could have been in that side of it too. But I kept feeling like, one, I got really lucky. Like I got really lucky that the experience that I went through did not genuinely kill me. And I don't use that as a metaphor. <laughs> there are like really risky things at, in my teen years because of those circumstances. So I got to survive something, but it does really make me always think, okay, how is this going to affect this community or that community? That might not necessarily be on the agenda of someone who did not have that kind of upbringing. 
This is so for, I, there's a book I will give you an example of uh, that most people have not read at all. Uh, people have forgotten it. It's Oscar Gandy's Panoptic Sort. Uh, mm -hmm. Let me see what year it was. I think it's definitely before Google was even a thing. I believe that he wrote it like there was before even a Google and it's or very early on. I think, yeah, it's 1993. So the panoptic wow. sort is it's talking about it's technically not a little jarring because he doesn't have Google to talk about. He doesn't have anything to talk about. He's just talking about how technology can lead to certain new kinds of redlining and marginalization through these surveillance systems. So how does this guy get to write this in 1993? It is not a coincidence that he's a black scholar. So mm -hmm. he got this history of marginalization and redlining and data and insurance being used to keep black people out of real estate markets. And he's kind of looking at the world and this is how it can go. That's not a perspective you necessarily might have if for you technology has been nothing but fun and liberating. And a lot of technical people who come from more privileged backgrounds, and I totally get the fun and liberating part. I don't mean to say it does not exist because it absolutely exists for me. It is, it was, it's changed my life for the better in a million ways. But the idea that in the hands of the powerful, it will not lead to what the powerful always do was very naive from day one. And if you lived in an authoritarian state growing up, like I did, you have a very healthy suspicion of what could go wrong <laughs> with this kind of information at the hands of a government or a large corporation or all of those things. So that kind of healthy suspicion of new technologies does, means it's, it's a problem that's plagued Silicon Valley from day one, partly because the people who work there early on got very rich very quickly and very powerful very quickly. And there's a way in which, and I don't say this as an insult, it just means they're humans too. There's a way in which if you come from a relatively well-off background, right, the Stanford's, Harvard's, Princeton's of the world, and then you get into a great job at a Facebook and your stock options are vesting and you're running, you're working in one of the most desirable uh, companies to work for in the world. And I've been to that campus and you're skateboarding around and the dry cleaning is on campus. And it's like a campus at that work. But you're, it's kind of hard to maybe connect mentally with what's going on in Myanmar with your software, with your platform. It, it's this, there's this huge disconnect between their experience and the scale of the thing. So that's been a thing I've, both, again, unlucky personal circumstances, and later on through personal choice, I've tried to stay away from that side, uh, which has, again, for your bank account, that's not the smart choice, but for your intellectual sort of influences, it's a freeing choice because there's nobody, and again, I don't say this as an insult, there's nobody who can be completely free of their own personal incentives and their own chances in life. And if you get lucky, you start thinking, this is how things work. And that's just, just a very human thing to do. So that's... Many people I know. Yeah. And one of the challenges, I've had this challenge for a long time with folks who make technology is to help them understand that at the other end of 
the software and at the other end of the metrics that they consume daily are human beings, that, that metrics are people too. And you know, sometimes that loss of connection to the humanity on the other side rep- manifests itself in silly things like building software that people don't want or not understanding why people don't use the software the way that you intended and wrote it beautifully in your business plan that they were supposed to yeah, follow. Yeah, exactly. It's always the user's fault. It has tragic consequences, that disconnection. Also, uh, yeah, I'll give you an example from something that everybody thinks that the tool they've developed or that they can use is always going to do things they like mm-hmm. and that they'll be in power of it. I wrote my first op-ed in the New York Times, I just I wasn't anybody, I just got into it, saying that Facebook was not really good for electoral politics and that the big data campaign was not good, that it was open to misinformation, that this kind of targeted advertising subsumed the public sphere out of our eyesight, so we can't mm-hmm. really see what's going on, called for transparency, called for all those things in 2012. And I wrote it about Obama being elected. I said, everybody's, because there were so many laudatory articles saying the big data tech campaign won. And of course, a lot of people, especially Silicon Valley, they were really sympathetic. The first African-American president, he got elected. His targeting was great. Romney doesn't know what hit him. His election day software crashed. Like there's also, and I said, I just basically wrote, and yeah, you only have a thousand words or so. I said, this is not, Regardless of your sympathy for the winner, this tool, as it stands, is not good or healthy for democracy or public sphere. Mm-hmm. Now, 2012, in, I mean, what an incredible, what was coming next? Yeah, and I, it did not go well. Sure got, people were really mad. They were very mad. I got, like, Obama, one of Obama data campaign people wrote a response without naming me. But it was clearly a response to my op-ed mm-hmm. just a week later, I believe calling it malarkey and all sorts of things. And I had people try to blacklist me from conferences because they were like, I, I just got accused of- culture. Yeah, it was early on. And I got called, do you want, did you not want Obama to win or not? And mm-hmm. I said, that's just irrelevant to the point. Somebody has to say, this is the tool. And one of the like most important sort of Things I kept hearing from both the tech people and Obama people was that the Republicans will never use this tool better than us. They were like, yes, you're right. It's an unfair advantage to whoever has it, and it'll always be on our side. I heard this a lot. Mm -hmm. I remember that too. And I thought, you're deluded. Like the idea that it's it's, one, it's always going to be in your hands, and two, it's going to be your pony doing whatever you want it to do. This is historically delusional. People should go back and read your original article. It was like, beware the smart campaign. Like, Yeah, it, was, it wasn't even like, it, in hindsight, it's so obvious. And then I started saying, like in 2014, I started saying, look, this business model, ad financing, there's a lot of downsides. Uh, we should try to like either tr- look for other business models. The engagement algorithms are not healthy. Uh, so there's all these things. And at the time, once again, the people um, who were winning thought this will always be in our sight. Also, my dissertation was about uh, with digital tech, you can actually have more inequality. A lot of people thought it's an engine of like lowering equality because you can get people, they can learn to code and they can do a lot of things. And I was like, you know what? Actually, that's true for me. Like here I am. Like it saved my life. 
Uh, I can shout it from the rooftops, but the idea that something like this can scale is not true. You're going to have the haves and have-nots, if anything. And I, I wrote that too, uh, and it was seen as just needless pessimism. And this is the part that I think doesn't communicate very well, is that there's been a kind of tech criticism that is the tech lash that comes from nostalgia of the old gatekeepers. They want their old power back. And I say this as someone who does sometimes write for the New York Times. They want New York Times to be the old news that's fit to print. And it's hard to lose that kind of power. And there's that kind of nostalgia for the old world. And the new sort of tech people and the West Coast people are like not very sympathetic to that point of view. And who can blame them? I'm not at all nostalgic for the old world either. That old world didn't have a great place for people like me to begin with. And also didn't have a lot of, there were a lot, there are good things about it, of course, but it wasn't some uh, perfect thing. We're not going back to that old world. It's not clear it was all that good. And besides, again, we're not going back to it. But that doesn't mean that this transition is amazing and nothing goes wrong with it. People like when I used to criticize the tech stuff early on, a lot of people will say, are you against the printing press too? And I'd be like, the printing press is great, but we quasi-stabilized that one in 1946. There was it, the whole Reformation era plunged the world into bloodshed. I, that doesn't mean the printing press was bad, but it was destabilizing. And destabilizing is not something you say, but in the long run, it'll be great, is not any way to look at a destabilizing technology. And mm -hmm. you can say the same thing about film and radio, right? We have Birth of a Nation is the beginning of film in the United States. And it's a movie that technically speaking, like it exercised the craft well in the service of a terrible message. It was a, a horrible racist film and it helped re-inspire the re-emergence of KKK. And it helped launch the Jim Crow era. And in Europe, you have the whole sort of both radio and the uh, uh, triumph of the will and that kind of power of the propaganda. So even technologies we now think of as like nice or at most just entertaining like film, it's not like some easy history where things just turned out. And this is a similarly world historic destabilizing technology. So while I sympathize with not necessarily wanting the nostalgia to win and just, and also that nostalgia right now, like I write for, I've had the privilege and now right now I write for the Atlantic. It's been around a long time. It published Frederick Douglass and all those sort of, now uh, we get to write for it. But of course it's not the old, there are certain lessons from the old world. For example, having two world wars back to back in Europe and then building an institution, the European Union, so that Germany and France do not go to war every other decade is a major accomplishment. It's institution mm -hmm. building. It's what stabilized uh, Europe, finally. There's a lot to learn from it, too. And it does feel like we're going through a moment like that now, where we have to learn the lessons that our grandparents figured out. And figure out the answers for now. For the 21st century. Correct. So what happens yes, what is... What does the 21st century WPA look like? Exactly. What does this, what does our European Union for this look like? Because after 21st century, people thought really long and hard about propaganda and have a moment in which propaganda leads to Auschwitz like that again. So Europe had a major reckoning with it. 
And they did build a lot of institutions, a lot of their laws, a lot of their broadcasting, even their hate speech laws, which look weird to an American from a First Amendment jurisprudence. It's rooted in a very particular history that had terrible lessons. Again, it led to Auschwitz. And that kind of lesson learning is all generationally lost because that generation is no longer necessarily around. And plus, their answers aren't correct. Because what happens is every generation fights the last war they would want. They're telling us, why don't we do what we did? And it's not going to work. It's not going to work. That's another thing. I had a, uh, another weird moment in my, like, a life-changing moment for me. Again, partly due to parental negligence. They, we were stationed in Europe when I was early teens because of the military thing. And without telling me where we were going... Uh, my parents uh, took us to visit Dachau, the concentration camp. Mm -hmm. And like we ha I had no idea where we were going. It was, oh, it's a day, we're in this town, and we're going to go visit something. I just, I have, I, I can't describe it. I was, I was shaken to my core because I knew what had happened in some of the way a child does. There was a war, lots of people were killed. But it's another thing to physically stand and see the scale of the mass graves. You just stand in front of this thing, and it's as far as your eye can see. You know, they're all like just physically, there are all the pictures and stuff like that. And I remember, like, that kind that, and that got me obsessed with another topic. It's just, you constantly see it in my work is how do we not let something like that happen again? Humans are a weird species. We're wonderful sometimes, but we also have the capacity to worse than almost any other species on the planet. So you have you that kind of Europe and the world after World War II had a major reckoning, never again. Now, of course, we didn't really keep our promise, but it was a reckoning and terrible things have happened since, but lessons have been learned and a lot of things didn't happen that could have happened. So we, we just have to say, what's the 21st? century version of it. And unfortunately, it's happened so fast in the Silicon Valley that there is no time. Like it's just the, the way the ad financing, the business model took over, just privileged growth and network scale, like network economies. So it just grew. And the second thing that I think has been not so good is that, again, like I realize why people want to make money. Uh, it's not like it's good for their own personal benefit. But when people are making that much money and in a, especially like this big quasi-monopoly status, it's very hard to stop that train. Like people have incentives that will absolutely influence how they think about criticism and also what steps they're willing to take to curb some of the harms. So that combination I think has not been good for trying to get a handle on, okay, this is, Potentially awesome, but also terrible all at the same time. How do we get in front of this train when you're minting billionaires left and center? That's just not, that's never been easy and it's never going to be easy. But we have to do it because as the pandemic shows, to go back to our pandemic, one of the things about the globalized world, and this is what I've been telling my friends in the tech world since 2012 and before, is that the ship goes down, you're in it. This idea that you're going to be in a bunker or a park or something like that. Yes, the wealthy and the privileged will have um, some level of protection longer, perhaps, than the rest of us. 
But we're so interconnected that if your tool spreads misinformation and spreads misinformation for hire or you don't pay attention to hate speech that's helping fuel ethnic cleansing one part of the world, you are not going to have your nice campus with the dry cleaning on the campus and skateboards everywhere as this happy island. There's just no, like, I wouldn't even morally recommend it, but forget the moral part of it. Practically speaking, speaking. it will take us all down. And that message is better heard before it takes us all down than after. But usually is he easier to hear in the after. I want to get back to the pandemic a little bit and just ask you to talk a little bit about how did this particular pandemic first come onto your radar? And then you've obviously had a long history of writing controversial articles and, and pushing <laughs> people to think in new ways. And you, you dove right into that uh, with this new crisis. So to just talk about the process. Like when did you first hear about the coronavirus at what point did you feel like, wait, this could really impact your own life and the life of our country? Both my previous interests and a few coincidences, I had been doing research in Hong Kong for the past year because I do social movements. And when I saw Hong Kong movement take off, I thought this is great as a research topic because it's a different country than a lot of other places I've researched in. I, like, I've been in Egypt and I've been in Tahrir Square during protests. I've been in 2011. I've been in a lot of places like just doing research and interviews and all of that. But those were less technically advanced places and they were more authoritarian to begin with. It was uh, longer odds in some way. But Hong Kong is all wired, right? It's just very advanced technically. It has a relatively highly educated population. And also, significantly for me, it interfaces with China. I thought this is super interesting. It's a different kind of place. It has had a movement before, the umbrella movement that failed. And now it's there's a second sort of big movement and it's interfacing with China, which is a very important power in this world, right? Because they have a particular model of AI and technology and surveillance, which I think we're building a similar infrastructure, but they're just doing it more consciously. We're just building it for ad financing, which is to me what a stupid way to go down. <laughs> At least China is doing something very consciously for their power, and we're just sleepwalking into a similar infrastructure. But I thought, you know what, I, this, is, this might be my one chance to interface with China, because you can't really do this kind of research in China. So I started flying to Hong Kong a lot, spending a lot of time, and my book was Twitter and Tear Gas, because that's what you get in a lot of movements, and I've been tear gassed so many times. And I got tear gas in Hong Kong too, of course, but they don't have Twitter, they have Telegraph. Something about the word T and protest, but mm-hmm. Twitter, Telegraph. I was like, so I thought this is super interesting. And I did a lot of work there, which I will hopefully get back to writing more from. And a lot has happened since. But when the pandemic news hit, Hong Kong had SARS as a crisis before. They had a lot of people die from it. They'd been through the experience, and Hong Kong, partly as a result of that, has a top-notch infectious disease epidemiology community. They have, from their sort of civic infrastructure to their ministries to their universities, they are excellent, and they also 
population-wise suffered so much through SARS, they have a population that's very well aware. So when the news of mystery pneumonia out of China, Wuhan, kind of came out at the end of December, you might remember there was a whistleblower doctor who was detained and censored and tragically died later from the coronavirus himself. He was an ophthalmologist, probably just close to many patients there. When the news came out, like the first, like right at the end of December and the first week of January, Hong Kong just acted like they were facing a major plague. They just jumped up in action, in reaction, because they'd been through SARS. And I have a very, it's very interesting, my purchase history, so you can see how I thought about it. And I've always been interested in pandemics and epidemics, and I had studied SARS and thought about SARS, and I had used it in my classes. I'd even written an article in 2014 about the Ebola crisis, basically saying everything that is uncontroversial now, we're not ready for a crisis, we're not ready for a pandemic, we don't have enough PPE. I mean, it's so obvious a little bit about how, how did you know? It is so obvious if you look, I mean, you can, I will send you my Ebola article link. If you look at any, yeah, if you look at any history of infectious diseases uh, and pandemics and epidemics, they're not super duper secrets. Exponential growth is very powerful. If you do, you know, penny save today is something tomorrow. I don't know what the exact mm-hmm. proverb is. I'm super proud of that article because it's 2014 and it says everything you, I would just immediately sign on to today but I don't think any of it was a secret. You just needed to say, oh, how do we think about pandemics and the threat? And I really wrote, don't be scared that Ebola is going to come to the United States because it's not a very pandemic-friendly vector, to be honest, because it kills very quickly, relatively speaking, and is like infectious when you're symptomatic, which is easier to control. Because like, people were freaking out there was going to be Ebola in the United States. I said, be afraid of what it reveals about our state of readiness for the pandemic that is going to hit. So uh, the Ebola, like, I was like, I'm super scared because it just says we can't even handle uh, this one where it's localized and we just need to go in there with supplies and do what we can. And we're not doing that. And I was like, this is going to come again in a form and we're going to get hit and very badly. If you read the article, it talks about the R naught. It talks about how if you just sort of don't start early on with isolation, tra- uh, tracing the contracts, sort of the, the contacts of people, mm-hmm. if the people at the hospitals don't have enough PP, because all the things that we're going through now, it was just happening there. So I, I had written that. So when I started hearing this new mystery pneumonia as People first called it out of China, and my ears immediately perked up. I'm like, okay, what is going on? We have to be on alert on this. And I believe it was as early, it was like January 7th. I'm trying to remember what news came out. Yeah, the news came out that the the doctors were being censored, and Mm -hmm. the local authorities in Wuhan started denying the rumors and saying this is just fear-mongering. And I was like, okay, we got to buy masks. (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> that's like everybody in Hong Kong, too. That's what Taiwan did, too. If China, if you know the history of SARS, too, especially at the local level, they have a history of lying up. Because mm-hmm. uh, especially right now with the current government, the they've just been not letting dissent 
be openly expressed. It's sort of the public sphere closed up worse. So if they're trying to suppress something, that's a bigger sign. It was a signal. That's how like in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, places that are familiar with the way the Chinese government operates, they all kind of masked up and shut things down early. So on January 7th, I was like, all right, let's start ordering some supplies. Something's happening and just start keeping an eye on it. And then on January 20th, China announced that they were shutting down Wuhan. They said, we're shutting down all of Wuhan. That's a city of 11 million people. And I think people have a failure of imagination. They think China, just because it's authoritarian, they think it's backward. And I'm like, no, it is not backwards. It is a highly capable government. It just happens to be authoritarian and top-down. It's a different beast, but it's not some backward, incompetent place. So when they shut it down, that was the first time I started tweeting about it. And I actually just pulled up my tweet and I was like, whoa, right? Because to me, if China shuts down that larger city, they're battling a major crisis. There's no way they're doing something that drastic if things aren't out of control. And I wrote, so I said, look, there are a lot of tensions with China, but on the other hand, from the economy to climate to pandemics, it really is one interconnected system. We desperately need governments that can manage all this or we're all going down. That was my January 22nd. This is the first time I started talking publicly about this is, we're all going down if we don't manage this. If this is at this level, it's out of control and we need to start acting. So on January 12th, I started like 22nd, I started thinking, okay, this is major. We got to do something. And that's when I started personally telling people I'm probably not going back to Hong Kong anytime soon. I thought I wouldn't be allowed in because there's an epidemic there. But in retrospect, they're so great at it. They don't let me in because I live in a country that's terrible at it. Uh, and I understand that. And I started personally telling my own friends and contacts, we're not going to be able to travel. We're not going to be able. And I started telling people, you got to get ready. You got to do this. So it went on for a few weeks like that. And all the news that was coming out was worrisome. So on January 26th or 28th, China finally started letting the scientists speak. And I have to say, the Chinese doctors, Chinese public, Chinese scientists have been heroic. They published the genome against permission. Like some Chinese scientists, like, or like the first week of January, I think by January 10th or 11th, I'm not sure about the date, they were sitting on the genome, not getting permission. He just went ahead and did. Like his lab just was like, just put it in the global database. Yeah, and in some ways, we've, we squandered the time that those squ- those sacrifices we squandered up. the amazing sacrifice Chinese whistleblowers doctors scientists yeah shame on us yeah it it really is and on Jan- after January twentieth they started letting the Chinese scientists themselves publish and there was an article uh, there was one New England of Journal of Medicine article and then one Lancet article back to back almost coming out of Wuhan and they both said asymptomatic spread I don't know if they used the word asymptomatic but they said that the symptoms were sometimes atypical. Sometimes they didn't include fever. They included uh, things that didn't happen uh, with SARS, because I'd studied this. Uh, What you got was somebody was not infectious till they were symptomatic. With Ebola too, it's the symptoms and infectiousness kind of coincide. So you can actually, with SARS, you could put a temperature gun on people's head 
and catch people when they were infectious. Uh, so I, I'm just looking at my own tweet from then on January 29th. It's the New England Journal of Medicine coming out. January 29th. These are like, we still had some time. Had time. And I said, oh, wow. Like I said, the paper says some cases of atypical presentation, gastro or gastro symptoms or mild clinical presentation. I said in parentheses, SARS came with high fever. And I said, translation, we need maybe millions of tests. Mm -hmm. So at that point on January uh, 20th, we had everything. We had like, this is going to spread. We're not going to be able to put fever guns in people's heads. It's almost certainly already in the U.S. to some degree. But if you can get in, you know, it's exponential growth. If you can get ahead of it, you have a shot. Mm -hmm. So I started personally, like I purchased hand sanitizer and masks and other things. And I remember like people, like I, I, I always joke about my third world immune system. I go, I travel a lot and I eat street food everywhere. And I, I look white, right? So a lot of times I'm with a group of white people or sort of Americans and we're at a place and our local hosts very kindly say, you guys don't eat this, right? Because they're kind of like, you guys don't, like, you didn't grow up with all these pitches. I'm like, no, no, I just look white and I eat everything and I never get sick. I eventually, you know, sort of potable water and proper healthcare standards will maybe get to me, but I always joke about that, right? So I don't have like a sanitized house, right? I do not have, but all of a sudden I'm buying hand sanitizer and putting it all over the place and doing all of that. So people who know me were like, did you just lose your mind? Like, why do you have hand sanitizer all over your house now? And I'm like, oh, the pandemic, I, I'm getting kind of ready. So I personally started getting ready, but I didn't think I would need to do much more than that. I thought, you know, this is bad. Uh, this is not going to uh, be good for the world. I'll just try to sort of personally get ready as much as I can. And of course, I adore the CDC and World Health Organization, historically speaking. They're these excellent, amazing institutions. We eradicated smallpox. You know, I'll get ready myself. You know, we'll have this amazing thing, which it'll be like all the movies you watch where the institutions work very well and we'll see what I can do. I waited and waited and waited. Uh, and I'm like, what earth? Like people are traveling. They're having conferences. Uh, people are like the mainstream media. They're publishing articles saying, don't, you know, beware of the pandemic panic and uh, making fun of tech world for not shaking hands and using hand centers, doing the same things I'm doing. I'm like, no, 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 no. They're correct, right? We need to like stop the travel, stop the conferences we need to first see what on earth is going on you know, we can resume later we need to act now so i sort of watched uh, people making flu comparisons i got lectured on twitter for panicking i remember yeah I, people were like why are you panicking i'm like you know what sometimes if a tsunami is coming your way please do panic <laughs> there are right like there are, i understand there are moral panics that are uh, invalid you know strangers aren't kidnapping children in some epidemic you know, stranger kidnapping. Yes, that is a panic that's hurting children because it's such a rare thing. You don't need to do anything more than, you know, just basic, simple stuff. But this is not like that. This is genuine. It's coming our way. And I got, like, people were like, and uh, we got told it was racist. And I'm like, no, 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 you need to act. It's actually racist not to recognize the amazing sacrifice Chinese scientists and doctors have done to warn us. Right. They went, they put everything on the line to tell us 
And you're not listening to these people. I don't think it's the idea that it's somehow racist to listen to them. I just could not get wrap my head around it. And also look at Hong Kong, look at Taiwan. Like there's a lot of expertise there and they've been through a lot of infectious disease and epidemics. You know, you need to listen to these experts. So I just waited. Uh, and I got really frustrated because I, tons of people, like I, I, I follow local Facebook groups sort of gauge the sort of mood of things. And tons of people in my current educated area, we have three universities uh, within like driving distance and then world-class universities, you know, UNC, NC State. And there's years where we have multiple Nobel Prize winners in the neighborhood. We are a very educated place. And I was looking at all these people saying, I'm thinking of going to Disneyland. Should I? And everyone's like, yes, of course, don't be afraid. It's like the flu. And I'm like, no, <laughs> we don't know if it's like the flu. We don't, like, it's a coronavirus. It's a novel coronavirus. We don't know, like, stop. Uh, and I got so frustrated. Um, on February, at the end of February, I published an, I had, uh, I owed Scientific American a blog post from last year. Like I had written a lot of stuff and then like, I had the honor of having a contract with them. It was really cool writing for that outlet, mm -hmm. but I owed them a blog post, uh, because I had a hand injury and I couldn't type and my editor was amazing, nice. And he was like, you, 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 he had told me you owe us a blog post and my hand then kind of healed and I was beginning to be able to type and I said, would you like a blog post about for the coronavirus to strike the U.S.? Like basically, it wasn't even my title. I said, this is something important we need to pay attention to. It's not happening. And he just happened, I think it was his first grandchild. So he was in the hospital. It was kind of busy. And he said, yeah, sure. Okay, whatever. You know, and I just typed it up. I actually tried like a few other outlets and they, nobody was really interested in it. This is February, right? And then right. it sounded alarmist, but I owed him a blog post and he was kind of distracted and he's always been very supportive. It was like, okay, if that's what you want to write about, go ahead. So I wrote it up and it literally went up without being properly edited. Uh, I have a couple of grammar mistakes. There's like one little, like I call something the wrong name and never fixed it. And I, I now keep it in Turkish. There's a belief. In Turkey, like an error is kind of like protective against the evil eye, some imperfection. Uh -huh. So I actually have a minor and not consequential. I call something slightly the wrong name. It's not consequential at all to the argument. It went up just like that. You know, he's busy and it just went up and I said, okay. And I wrote, it's literally says preparing for the coronavirus to strike the U.S. And it is explaining stay at home and why we need to flatten the curve. As far as I know, it's like the first mainstream outlet of writing about flattening the curve. And once again, this is not a new concept. Like I knew about flattening the curve because I know about epidemiology and I've been following them. And we've been following what's going on in Wuhan with the overwhelmed hospitals. And I thought, damn, we're going to get overwhelmed hospitals here. And that's terrible. And because even if you have, I mean, a novel coronavirus is risky enough, but overwhelmed hospitals, you're going to lose people to cardiac arrest. You're going to lose people to everything else because your hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. So I literally wrote this thing saying, look, people are treating this like something the preppers should take seriously, some sort of one more doomsday scenario. There's nothing for you to do. I said, this is not true. You need to get ready to stay at home for a while, interact as little as possible with people, 
And I explained what flattening the curve meant. I explained what R0 meant. I explained what the case fatality ratio meant. I explained that these things are not some natural variables. They're not like, you know, Avogadro number, like here's a number there. It's more like it depends on how you interact. It depends on what you do. So there's no case fatality ratio that's preordained. It depends on how overwhelmed your hospitals are. There's no R0 that's absolutely going to happen. It depends how people social distance. I wrote all the stuff that's super basic. I said, you know, get some shelf-stable food, get your hand sanitizer. You know, I, I said, okay, masks aren't available anymore. There's already kind of a shortage, but just do what you can. I wrote this, you know, stock up on your prescription medication, the basics. I wrote this. And at the time, as far as I know, as I said, there wasn't anybody writing that I mean there were I'm sorry let me correct this public health people were trying yeah <laughs> all the public done. health people were trying saying we got to get ready uh, but they did not necessarily have the kind of access I had to like traditional media something like the Scientific American so well, they were point about the old gatekeepers you know, who did not exactly cover themselves in glory here I think New York Times has done excellent reporting on the pandemic I think they have been invaluable all like a half of what we know about wuhan it's their reporters and in return they got kicked out for it so i want to say that there's such an important role for journalism here but on their opinion pages they were publishing things saying beware of the pandemic panic and writing articles by the tourism industry people saying uh quarantines don't work and who says we shouldn't i know or otherwise like it was ridiculous right so they weren't their opinion pages were writing these things that I was seeing in real time that people were using to justify their, uh, uh, let's say, uh, not canceling a conference or things like that. Whereas if you looked at the reporting side of traditional media, of New York Times, mm -hmm. and Wall Street Journal has also been excellent in this, I have to say, and Financial Times to some degree too, like especially the New York Times, they, they got their people expelled in like the Chinese government punished them. And the reporters were just so important. In China, there's uh, Kaikin, Kaishin. Uh, that's also a local outlet that was amazing. So we knew this was happening, but there wasn't this sort of, the message wasn't getting through. So I wrote this and I thought, I'll at least have something to show my friends. Mm -hmm. It's a blog post. Well, pretty darn viral uh, as these things go. Uh, Hillary Clinton tweeted it out. And like all sorts of people who were looking for all these articles in one place. Because what happened is the public health people, they weren't being listened to. Mm -hmm. And they were tweeting. And for a lot of things, you need this sort of long form. Mm -hmm. So I had this luck. I had already lots of followers. And I had some reputation for being non-panicky. Well, that's not entirely luck. That's a lot of years of cultivating that reputation. Yeah. And I, I mean, I travel to Tahrir Square if there's a, even when there's a protest. Like I do not, I am not particularly risk averse, mm -hmm. right? And I, I do actually do protect myself, of course. I wear a helmet, but I don't like freak out just because there's tear gas and there's all these things that I'm kind of like not known as avoid everything kind of person. You know, I scuba dive. I, I, I Again, I'm not like sort of, I'm not a, I'm not, what's the most risky thing you can think of? I don't think I'm reckless. I'm not a cave dive, very risky and I wouldn't dare, uh, but I do things. So I had the sort of reputation as not particularly risk averse. And here I was saying in long form, you got to get ready. And this is not just some doomsday prepping. This is real. A tsunami is coming our way. And this is why we need to flatten the curve. And it went really viral. And it's been very heartening to me. I've been hearing nonstop from people 
since then saying, that's why I canceled my travel. That's when I told my elderly parents stay home. That's when I stocked up and like, yeah, I know. I don't really know if anything worked, but I know so many people who've contacted me and said, I stopped doing things and I got convinced. And I'm like, this is amazing because if my words, because again, I'm just channeling existing public health knowledge. Like nothing I wrote is, oh, I covered uh, Higgs boson, right? I did not, uh, there's no breakthrough except analysis put there in just one place in a readable format under a name, Scientific Mm -hmm. American, which people recognize as a place that doesn't just publish uh, random things, right? So what happened is I wrote this, it went viral, and I got, I heard, as I said, from a lot of people later. And then I thought, you know what? I should not sit this out. I, I was feeling like, okay, you know, I'm not a complete novice. I read this literature. I know a lot about epidemiology, but I'm not a trained epidemiologist. I'm not a public health person. But then I realized you know, it's one more voice. And in some ways, I can take risks that might be harder for them. And that's when we, when we come to the mask op-ed in a few like which I published a few weeks later, I'll come back. I realized that I have this sort of platform that I can use to try to talk about this. Uh, and again, channeling existing expertise and the analysis. So I don't like. I don't see myself at all replacing or doing something the public health people aren't doing and trying very hard to do. But I just happen to have the microphone or the bullhorn, whatever you want to call it, that at the time they were not given, which is tragic, which is terrible. But I found myself um, almost against what I wanted to do, not writing about the pandemic in a very public way rather than just sort of privately watching it and getting ready myself. And since then, I've written a lot more about it. And that's, that's how that one came to be. If only our leaders had been reading those articles and taking them seriously, uh, how much better off we would all be right now. This has been Out of the Crisis. I'm Eric Reese. Out of the Crisis is produced by Ben Ehrlich, edited by Jacob Tender and Sean McGuire. Music composed and performed by Cody Martin. Hosting by Breaker. For more information on the COVID-19 crisis and ways you can help, visit helpwithcovid.com. If you are working on a project related to the pandemic, please reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at E-R-I-C-R-I-E-S. Thanks for listening.